take your copy of God's Word and open up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be together this morning as we continue to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're in a section in Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus explains the way of the kingdom. We're in a section where Jesus is talking about how we should live out our righteousness before others. And uh, he talks about three major areas in Matthew chapter 6, the area of our giving, the area of our praying, and the area of our fasting. And uh, this morning, we're coming to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, where we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about how to pray. Now, if you've ever uh, thought much about prayer, you've probably wondered, how should I pray? Or maybe you've wondered, uh, why does God not always seem to answer my prayers the way I want Him to answer my prayers? Or maybe you've wondered if God even hears you at all when you pray. Maybe you feel like you pray and they just, those prayers go up and hit the ceiling and come right back down and you're just not sure God even wants to hear from you when you pray or how all of that works. I, I heard of a young man who wondered if it would be okay to kiss his girlfriend and so he decided to pray about it underneath his favorite tree in the backyard. Now, little did he know his younger brother earlier in that day had climbed up into the tree and had been playing in the tree when he decided to go kneel underneath it and pray. So the young man knelt. He asked God, Father, Father, up above, may I kiss the one I love? And he was shocked to hear a voice from the heavens reply, sinner, sinner, down below, pucker up and let her go. Seriously, I think we all wonder sometimes, why does it seem like our prayers go unanswered? And maybe more importantly, how should we pray? Well, that's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 in verses 5 through 15. And these verses are, are uh, structured in a very simple way. Jesus talks, first of all, about how not to pray. And then he talks about how we should pray, all right? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, how we should not pray and how we should pray. So let's look, first of, all, uh, first of all, at what Jesus says about how not to pray. Let's dive into the text at Matthew chapter 6 and beginning in verse 5. Jesus says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, notice this, to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the, like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Because your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. So Jesus here in this paragraph very simply shows us how not to pray. And I think what Jesus is describing here are, are the, the ways of praying that God doesn't seem to respond to. There are some ways that you can pray where your prayers will go unanswered. And I think Jesus actually gives us three types of prayers that go unanswered in these verses. The first kind of prayer is this. 
Prayers that go unasked go unanswered. Prayers that go unasked go unanswered. Did you notice in uh, verse 5, Jesus says, when you pray. Now, the first step, this is maybe rudimentary, but I think it's important to say, the first step to having answered prayer is to pray. Now, you got to go to seminary to learn that kind of stuff right there, that brilliant insight. The first step to having answered prayer is to pray. And now that's worth saying because I believe that there are many times God doesn't answer our prayers because we never asked for him to answer them. In other words, there are a lot of prayers that go unasked. Jesus doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. He's assuming here that his followers will have a lifestyle of prayer. Unfortunately, most Christians today function like practical atheists. We don't have a lifestyle of prayer. And many of the prayers we might have prayed or would have prayed never get answered because they never get asked. You know, the great theologian slash hockey legend Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, right? What I would tell you is you will have 100% of the, the, the prayers that you don't pray, 100% of those prayers that you don't pray will go unanswered. Now, maybe you're, you're saying, well, if I prayed this, God won't answer me. Well, I can tell you, if you don't pray it, God will certainly not answer you. If you do pray it, God may answer in a way that you didn't want him to answer. He may not give you what you asked for, <clears throat> but he'll never answer a prayer that you don't pray. Does that make sense? So I think the first thing that we need to do is just think about this idea of when you pray. We should be praying. We should be living a lifestyle of prayer. And neglected prayer is unanswered prayer. So prayers that go unasked are prayers that go unanswered. Here's the second kind of prayer that goes unanswered. And that is, Jesus tells us this in verses 5 and 6, prayers that are fake go unanswered. Prayers that are fake or fake phony, go unanswered. And you say, what does it mean to pray a fake prayer or a phony prayer? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. When you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites. Now, just notice that word hypocrite. Hypocrite means, to literally, it means to be an actor. That's what the word in Greek means, to be an actor. Don't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Now you say, well, what's wrong with standing in the synagogue to pray or standing on a street corner to pray? Well, nothing in and of itself. But notice this last little phrase in verse 5. The reason that they love to stand in the synagogue and they love to pray on the street corners is in order to be seen by people. Now just underline that phrase, to be seen, because this is a repetition from verse 1. Be careful, Jesus tells us in verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Let's say this part together, to be seen by them. You see the repetition in verse 2 as well. Whenever you give to the poor, Jesus tells us in that verse, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on, on the streets. Look at this, to be applauded by people. You see that? You see the repetition here? Jesus says, don't practice your righteousness in order to be seen. So when you give, don't give just to get the applause of man. When you pray, don't pray in order that other people will see you. The idea is that there was a group of hypocritical religious people who loved to pray in front of others so that they would be impressive to them. 
In Mark chapter 12, Jesus talks about people who pray long prayers just for show. Now, I think that's a hilarious verse. Jesus says, you know, there are people that you all hear and see who give long prayers, but it's just for appearance's sake. It seems like they're very spiritual. It seems like they're very serious about their walk with God. But in reality, they're praying those long prayers just so that you will be impressed with them. That's what he's talking about right here in verse five. He's saying there are hypocrites. They are acting. They are putting on a performance. They're putting on a show. They are praying publicly and sometimes praying long prayers so that you will see them and be impressed with their spirituality. Now, don't raise your hand if you've seen this, but you all know you've seen this. People who pray, very impressive prayers, but at a certain point, you're like, are they talking to God right now or are they talking for my sake? That's what Jesus is addressing here. That's a kind of fake prayer, a prayer that's vocalized for the sake of the people in the room it's not really a prayer to God. It's a, phony, it's a phony prayer. We had a professor, Amy and I did in college, who would uh, pray at the end of our chapel services sometimes. And you weren't really sure if he was praying to God or sp- speaking to us because he would pray the announcements. <laughs> Some of you have a small group leader that does this maybe. You know, so he's like, God, we thank you for this chapel service. And we thank you for the lunch that we're about to eat together down in Horner Hall. The tickets are $10. If you go down by and it's like, wait, are you praying right now? Or are you sharing the announcements? Jesus says there are some people who love to just pray in such a way, you know, using the best King James English that they can use so that the people around them will hear their prayers and say, wow, they are very spiritual. Boy, they must really love God, you know. Maybe you felt the pressure for that. Maybe you had a small group leader who called on you to pray at the end of class and you weren't prepared. And now you have to pray in front of all these people and you think in your mind, well, I better, I better nail this prayer. You know, all these people are watching. And so you just pull out, you know, we thank thee, O God. And hymn lyrics are coming to your mind for the son of thy love. You know, and you're just, what, because you, you got to pray an impressive prayer because people are watching you. Jesus says, if you're praying like that, then if you want the attention of people, that is your reward. You, you have your reward. If, if you're praying in order to impress people, chances are your prayer will impress people. But that's the only reward you'll get. The, the reality is, if you're praying so that people hear you, People are the only ones who will hear you. That's the implication. Instead, Jesus says, go to your private room, close your door, pray to your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret will will reward you. Others may not notice. Others may not be impressed. Others may not be aware of your consistent time in your prayer closet, but the Lord will notice. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't pray for the approval of others. You know, living for the approval of other people is exhausting, isn't it? To just always have to be impressive, that's a burden. It's a burden that we're not really created by God to bear, to be impressive all the time. And the reality is that can seep into our walk with God as well, to try to do the righteous things we do, whether it's giving or praying or fasting or whatever else, in order to impress or get the approval of others. Jesus is just saying, pray to God and God alone. God sees you, and there's a reward from God. Don't worry about the approval of other people. So don't pray prayers that are fake. But here's a third kind of praying. 
that, that goes unanswered. And that would be prayers that are all words and no heart. Okay, prayers that are all words and no heart. Notice what Jesus says in verses seven and eight. When you pray, Jesus says, don't babble like the Gentiles. Since they imagine that they'll be heard, notice this, for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. What's Jesus talking about there? Well, he's apparently talking about a kind of praying that was happening in the first century, but I think it actually can happen today, where people would uh, practice like repetitious prayers, okay? So they would, they would uh, have kind of a mantra that they might pray. They would repeat it, almost like meaningless repetition. Uh, the pagans thought, for instance, that they could catch the God's attention if they would just sort of mindlessly repeat certain words. It was almost like viewing prayer like a magic formula or an incantation. Like if you said just the right words or said it in just the right way or you said it in just enough, uh, enough times that God will pay you attention. You can see this with the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. They're trying to get God's attention. And so they cut themselves and they scream and they dance and they do all of these types of things to try to sort of wake God up and get him to pay attention. Sometimes you can view prayer that way. Like if I just pray this enough times, then maybe God will know I'm really serious about it. Or maybe I didn't pray using the right words. I remember as a kid, you know, have, struggling with assurance of my salvation because I wasn't sure if I said the sinner's prayer the right way. So I would say it again and again and again. Anybody ever do that? Okay, or was it just me? Okay, you know, camp comes around and you get saved again, you know, because you weren't sure you said the sinner's prayer just exactly the right way. And it's like, I've got to say the right words. I've got to say them the right way. I've got to say it the right number of times in order for God to pay me attention. Jesus says, listen, if you're praying that way, then really that's all prayer and that's all words, no heart. You're, you're babbling like the Gentiles, thinking that you're going to get God's attention just by, by all of your words. Let me give you a relieving thought. God already knows what you need before you ask him. And, and God's answer to what you need is not dependent on you using just the right words in just the right way and just so many times. That's exactly what Jesus says right here in verse eight. He says, don't be like them because your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. And guess what? God is eager to answer you. Amen. God loves you so much. He is eager to meet the needs that you have. He's not sort of waiting for you to say your prayers just right in order to answer you. God's not holding back blessing from you or holding back answers for you just because you didn't happen to pray the right way. I love Romans chapter eight because it says that the spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that are too great for words. I think that sometimes that, that means, listen, you've been here maybe in your life where you've, you've had something that's been so heavy on your heart, something that is so weighty in your life. You don't even know how to formulate the right words to use in prayer. Have you ever been there? Are you like, don't know what to pray? You don't even have words to pray? Here's some really good news. God loves you so much and God is so eager to meet the deepest needs of your heart that the Holy Spirit of God, here's the way I would put it. He takes your prayers and he fixes them on the way up. The Spirit intercedes for you. Even when you don't have the right words or you don't know what to say, or maybe you just pray it the wrong way, you know what I'm talking about? The Holy Spirit will intercede on your behalf. And so Jesus says, don't uh, go into this kind of mindless, 
heart's not in it, sort of repetitious kind of praying. Th those are prayers that go unanswered. If you think that you're going to sort of strong arm God or manipulate God into answering by just using sort of this magical, magical prayer formula or something like that. Listen, you, you'll see books out there like about the prayer of Jabez and other things. And some of those are, are good, but some of them kind of come off like trying to manipulate God a little bit. If you just pray this prayer this way, then God will do what you want him to do. It doesn't work that way. God is a good God who knows what you need, is eager to, to answer, and will do what is for his greatest glory and your greatest good, even if you don't have the words, or even if you don't have any words. Amen? So that's how we should not pray. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He then shifts in verses 9 through 15 to teach us how we should pray. And what Jesus provides here is uh, what, what's been commonly called um, the model prayer or the Lord's prayer. And Jesus teaches us how to pray. Now, he's not saying here that this is, these are the only words that you can use when you pray. I think what Jesus is doing in verses 9 through 15 is just teaching us a way of praying. He's showing us different aspects of prayer, different kinds of ways of praying that, that God delights in. So that's what I want you to see in verses 9 through 15, how to pray. And I want to read these verses and to just point out kind of three major ideas here as we walk through them. Look, look at verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then Jesus makes a promise in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. So I think Jesus shares with us a, a way of praying here where we are invited to, to do three things. Number one, I think we are invited in prayer to acknowledge God's position. Okay, can we say that together? We acknowledge God's position. Notice what Jesus says in verses 9 and 10. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think this is where prayer begins. Prayer does not begin first and foremost with what we're asking God to do. Okay, prayer is part of, part of prayer is we ask God to do certain things, but that's not where we begin in prayer. We begin in prayer instead by acknowledging God's position. And notice his position here in the text. Our Father who is in heaven. That's a description of God's authority. He is our Father who is seated in the heavens. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute because when you think about heaven, sometimes in our minds we can think of clouds, harps, angel bands, things of that nature. That's really the wrong imagery. When you think about heaven, think about throne room, throne room. This is God's throne room. And when we pray to a God who is in heaven, we are acknowledging a God who is on the throne. Listen to what Psalm 115 and verse 3 says. Our God is in the heavens. Let's say this part together. He does whatever he pleases. Now that's a good place for a big fat amen. God is in heaven, which means he does whatever he pleases. Why? Does he do whatever he pleases? Well, because he's in heaven. He's, he's in the place of authority. 
He's seated on a throne. This is a description of the authority of God. When we pray, we begin by acknowledging His position, and it's a position of authority. He is the one who is enthroned in heaven above all things and is completely sovereign. That's the theological word for it, the sovereignty of God. That means the authority of God. Charlie Dates says this is just a, a big theological way of talking about the fact that we have a big God who does whatever He wants. And I hope that in your heart, that is a comforting thought. That you, when you pray, you are praying to no small God. You are praying to a God who is enthroned above all things. You're praying to a God who is a big God. He's a God who needs nothing and can do anything. And that ought to give great confidence to you when you pray, because when you come to God, because He's a big God who needs nothing and can do anything, because He's a big God who's seated on a throne, that means that there is no prayer request that is too big for our big God to answer. There might be a situation in your life where you're, you're thinking in your mind, this is too outrageous of a thing to ask for. No, it's not. God is big enough that there is nothing so big He cannot answer if it's in His will. He has the authority to do whatever He wants. Because He's seated in the heavens, that means He's above the earth. And here's the deal. He can take, Jesus put it this way in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, all authority has been given to me, where? In heaven and on earth. That means there's no spiritual problem in your life that He can't handle. There's no earthly problem in your life that He can't handle. He's got all authority in heaven and on earth. And so that's where we start in prayer. Isn't that a good place to start? Before I even ask God for a single thing, I'm just acknowledging His position. He has the place of authority, which means He is big enough to handle whatever I bring to Him in prayer. But then there's a couple of commitments that are made here in the next couple of lines. Your name be honored as holy. Now, I think it's really interesting here that, again, Jesus doesn't teach us just to go right into our requests. He says, start with God's position. It's a position of authority. He's in heaven. But then you make a commitment to His authority. You say, your name be honored. Your name be honored. I think it's very important when we pray that we begin by making a commitment to God that what matters most to me is not first and foremost that my requests are answered the way I want them to be answered. That can't be my uppermost commitment for my request to be answered the way I've asked. My uppermost commitment has to be that God would be honored through my life. That regardless of how God answers my particular request, my greatest desire is for His name to be honored in my life, with my lips and with my life, that His name would be honored. Now, see, that's a, that's a position of submission. We recognize His authority, and now we submit our lives to it. You're in heaven. You're above all things. Now, I want to bring you honor with my life. And that means that I'm submitting myself to Him answering however will bring Him most honor. You see, you might be sick, and you might be praying for healing. But maybe God is going to be most honored by you enduring through sickness rather than being healed. Uh, our Christian brothers and sisters all around the world in persecuted countries sometimes are thrown into prison for their faith. 
And we might pray for release, but maybe God would be most honored through their faithfulness behind bars. Sometimes we, we pray for life, but what if it's through death that God receives the most honor? You see, we're submitting ourselves here at the beginning of our prayer time by saying, God, we acknowledge your authority, your position. You're in the heavens. You can do whatever you want. And I want my life to bring you the greatest honor. You have the place of honor in my life. And and that's supreme in my heart and in my mind, more than getting my request answered. That's a secondary thing. The primary thing is God be honored in in my life. So often our prayers have to do with making life easy. God, help me fix the problem, take me out of the situation. Maybe God has put us into the situation because it's through that situation that he's going to be most honored. Prayer begins with this recognition. And then notice the the line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, those two statements are in parallel. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? It means for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is an acknowledgement of God's position of ruler, He is the king. The kingdom is his. We want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so in prayer, before again, before we ask for anything, we we say, God, thy will, not my will. Thy will, not my will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, see, when you come to the Lord like that, what you're doing is you're acknowledging his position, and then you're living a life of submission. You're saying, God, I acknowledge your authority, your your place of honor, your right to rule, the, the, the reality that you can do anything that you please. And I want to submit myself to bringing you honor and glory, to having your will be done more even than my will be done. So, in prayer... That's where we start. We start with a recognition of who God is and just praise and adoration and worship and awe of who God is. But then the second big thing that Jesus teaches us here is verses 11 through 14, and that is that we can then ask for God's provision. We are invited by Jesus himself to ask God for the things that we need. I know a lot of us at the beginning of this year, we went through the 21 days of prayer and a 21 Days to Childlike Prayer, a short book written by Jed Coppinger, which was such a wonderful book on prayer. And one of the things that Jed Coppinger uh, says that I think is so helpful, he just says, look, you can ask God anything you want. Sometimes we kind of hedge our bets when we pray. We say, I don't want to ask for this thing because it's too big. And Jed says, look, God loves you so much, and he's such a big God, and he's, he's a good father, which means you can ask him whatever you want, but then you trust him with his answer. So if, 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 if there's something in you, your life that you feel like you want to ask God for, but you're maybe not sure if you can ask for, for that, you can ask for it. But then you're called to trust him with the answer. Here Jesus tells us that we can ask God for his provision. Notice that in verses 11 through 13, he shifts to requests. Okay, and there are three different kinds of requests in, in these three verses. Number one, it's a request for God's supply. God, supply my needs. You see it in verse 11, give us today our daily bread. This is just simply coming to God and saying, God, I need you to meet the need that I have in my life. I have a need and you have a supply. 
I need daily bread, so I'm asking for you to give me daily bread. This is the prayer of the Israelites in the wilderness, right? When they're asking God and trusting God for, for manna. Every single, and I think the interesting thing about manna is that it's an every single day kind of thing. You don't get to store it up. Uh, you don't have like, you know, 60 days worth of manna in the bank. It's daily manna. That means you have got to trust God every single day. There's a daily dependence there. Jesus doesn't say, you know, Jesus, fill our bank accounts so that we won't need you anymore. He says, ask for daily bread. God, give me what I need today. Give me just enough for today. That's a request for God's supply. This is not asking for financial excess, but financial provision. And you can ask for that. You can ask God to provide for your physical needs and for your financial needs, but you also come with a posture of dependence that, God, I'm willing to trust you. Even if I don't have enough for tomorrow, I'm willing to trust you with what you've provided for me today. So ask for the provision of his supply. Here's a second thing that you can pray for. You can ask God for forgiveness. Amen? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. In verse 14, there's a great promise. If you're willing to forgive others, God will forgive you. That's a wonderful promise of God's word. A prayer for forgiveness is a prayer that God is eager to answer and he will always answer in the affirmative. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what, what you've come to God with, if you will ask him to forgive you, God will forgive you. Amen? So we can ask for his provision of forgiveness. A, a, a prayer for forgiveness is a prayer God is eager to answer. If you ask for forgiveness, God always says yes. And here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means that no matter what you've done, God wipes your slate clean and gives you a brand new start in life. It's what Jesus calls being born again. Maybe you're here today and this is your first time to church ever, or maybe it's your first time in a long time. And maybe there are things that you have carried into this room with you and it's like a burden on your back. Maybe there's things that you've done that you feel like no one could ever forgive you for. Maybe the people in your life haven't forgiven you. Maybe you can't even forgive yourself. But if you'll come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you, he'll forgive you. We're invited. Jesus invites us to pray this way. Ask God for forgiveness. If you ask God for forgiveness, he'll forgive you. He'll wipe your slate clean. The Bible tells us his mercies are new. How often? Every morning. You ever wonder why that phrase is there? Because we need it every morning. And his mercies are fresh. There is more grace in him, someone once said, than there is sin in us. And God is eager to forgive. I, I uh, took an art class when I was younger, and I am, have expertise in stick figure art. <laughs> but uh, there was a little paint bottle there. I accidentally knocked it over, and that paint just spilled over my stick figures. <laughs> and so I asked the teacher for a new canvas, and she came and she took that that mistake, and she replaced it with a new canvas. That's really what God's forgiveness does in our life. Sin is that, that spill, that mistake, that, that tarnish. When we ask for forgiveness, we get a, a brand new canvas. We get a brand new start in our life. That's God's mercy. That's one thing Jesus invites us to pray for. But there's a third request that we can make, and that is a prayer, a request for protection. 
protection. Did you notice what Jesus says in verse 13? Do not bring us into temptation, but instead deliver us, uh, rescue us from the evil one. Here's the reality. If you name the name of Christ, if you say, I'm a follower of Christ, then you have a target painted on your back. Satan hates you and wants to take you out. The Bible says in 1 Peter that he is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And Satan seeks to devour all of us because when he can get at us, it tarnishes the name of Christ. It, it destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys communities. And so Satan is after us. And Jesus says, listen, one of the ways that you can pray, one of the right kinds of things to pray for is to pray simply that God will protect you from temptation. I think it's interesting that he prays that tell, teaches us to pray that we be protected not just from sin, but one step back away from sin, temptation. Jesus is saying, pray not only that God will keep you from sin, pray that he will keep you even from the temptation to sin. And here's the thing. This is another one of those requests that God is eager to answer. If you say, God, I want you to protect me from temptation, that is the kind of request that is in accordance with God's will, that God is eager to respond in the affirmative. I've, I've, to be honest with you, I have feared at times, will I make it to the finish line? And maybe you've wondered that. How will I make it to the finish line in my ministry? How will I make it to the finish line in my marriage? How, how will I make it to the finish line in my walk with Jesus? The only way that you and I are going to make it is if Jesus protects us. It's not because we have the internal resources necessary, right? Remember where Jesus begins the sermon. We are poor in spirit. We don't have what it takes. Paul says, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. We can't sort of in spiritual pride or spiritual arrogance say, well, I would never do that. But by the grace of God, we will all go there. The only way that we have any hope of making it to the finish line is for Jesus to get us safely home. And it is a good and righteous prayer to say, Jesus, get me there. Jesus, help me finish the finish line, faithful. Jesus, don't bring me into, not even sin, don't, don't bring me even to the temptation to sin. Deliver me from the evil one, this evil one who is seeking after to destroy me. Deliver me, rescue me, protect me. I love Jude 24, which is a, a doxology at the end of uh, the short letter of Jude. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's a precious promise of God's word, that Jesus is powerful enough not only to save you, but to keep you. Not only to rescue you, but to hold on to you. That this is a precious doctrine as Christians that we hold on to called the preservation of the saints. That means that He will preserve us all the way to the end. He is the one who will keep us from stumbling. And that's the kind of prayer we ought to be praying each and every morning. Jesus, keep me from stumbling. Holy Spirit, deliver me from temptation. Pray for protection. But there's a third and final thing, and, and then I'm done, that, that an aspect of this prayer that I just want you to notice, okay? We, we acknowledge God's position. We, we ask for God's provision. But, but let me just tell you the delight of prayer. And that is, we're invited here by Jesus to enjoy 
God's presence. In prayer, we get to enjoy God's presence. Notice at the beginning of verse 9, just two words, our Father. I just want to circle back, and that's where I want to end today, just thinking about the family language that's used there, our when we pray, it's not an individualized thing. It's not about me and my needs. It's us, our Father. We pray with and for one another in community. But we pray to a God who is Father. The word here that Jesus uses is the word Abba. It's a very intimate term that you would use for, for a dad that you love. Something like Daddy. Uh, Abba, Father. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says that God has given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That means that if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're an adopted son or daughter. You're invited into God's family and you're invited to address Him in the most intimate term possible. Abba, Father. And, and I think that that is encouraging to us because there's an irony here in verse 9. Our Father in heaven. Notice the juxtaposition between those. He's in heaven. That means He's big and He's above us. Theologians say he is transcendent. That means he's above us. But he's also our father. That means he's not just transcendent. Theologians say he's also imminent. That means he's not just far above us. He's also right next to us. He's near to us. He's with us. Jesus himself was called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Us. So when you pray, you're not just praying to a God that's like very far distantly removed from his creation. You are praying to a God who is near you, who is next to you, who is with you. You are praying not just to our Father in heaven, you're praying also to our Father. That means that he loves us. He invites us to come and spend time. He wants to spend time with us like a good father wants to spend time with his children. God wants to spend time with you. And, and you know, that shows us something about the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer, listen to me, folks, is not primarily to have our requests granted. The purpose of prayer is not primarily to alert God to our needs. Jesus already tells us he knows what we need before we ask. Guess what? God knows what you need before you know that you need to ask. So the reason we pray is not so that we'll let God know what we need. He already knows it. The reason to pray is not to have him answer the way we want him to answer. The primary purpose of prayer is to enjoy the presence of the Father. It's just to be with God. Which means every time you pray is a successful prayer time whether God answers the way you want Him to or not, because every time you pray, you're with the Father, and that's the purpose of prayer. It's to be with Him, which means if you pray, you get what you were after. You get God. That's why we pray. We realize that in prayer, the giver is better than the gift. And we pray in order to enjoy the presence of the Father. The intimacy is the goal. You should write this down. Prayer is not about answers. It's about reward. Jesus says that. The Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's the reward? It's the giver. God himself is the reward. Herman Bovink says that God and God alone is man's highest good. When you pray, 
It's not primarily about answers. It's about reward. It's the reward of knowing the Father. And by the way, if he's a father and if he's big, then it means he's big enough and good enough to answer in the best way possible, even if it's not what I asked for. If he's big and if he's a father, it means I can trust him with the answer no matter what the answer happens to be. I love what Tim Keller says about prayer, that in prayer, we always get what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we knew all that God knows. He's big. He's a father. That means he's good. He's strong. He'll answer the best way possible, all for what brings him the greatest glory and us the greatest good. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we are thankful for the invitation that you give to us, not just to ask for things, but to enjoy being with you. We just thank you for the grace of that. Lord, we ask for forgiveness where we are prayerless where we neglect prayer. We never even ask. We ask for forgiveness where our prayers are fake or phony. Lord, forgive us when we think that we can manipulate you with our prayers. Just help us to pray the way we're taught in Matthew 6. Lord, I'm thankful for our church family that we are a praying people. I pray that you would help every one of us to experience the reward of your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.